What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I am Jordan, joined again with Jared, and we are going to be continuing last week's episode on the minimal facts approach to the resurrection. This is a popular apologetic, arguably the most popular way to argue for Jesus' resurrection as being a part of history, a thing you could have gone back in time and witnessed. So last week, we talked about the approach itself, why the minimal facts are facts and why we think they should be taken as facts such that you have to explain them and if you're going to do history. Uh, the facts, in case you missed last week, facts are Jesus died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. Very shortly after Jesus' death, some of the disciples had experiences that led them to believe and proclaim that Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them. And within a few, within a few years of Jesus' death, Paul converted after experiencing what he interpreted as post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to him. Now, that's the minimal facts as presented by Mike Lacona in his dissertation from 2009, and he's presented the same facts uh, throughout time as well. So, last week we covered what those facts are. Today, we promised we'd be comparing the resurrection hypothesis with our own natural one. And we didn't exactly lie, because that was our intention. Uh, but <laughs> when, <laughs> it's not lying if you were... Tell me the truth at the time. So we, as I was putting together everything, this episode would have been like an hour and a half or more long if I try to put both of those together in one. And I know from the analytics that you guys don't watch two hour long videos. So we decided to cut it uh, in half. We're going to talk about the resurrection hypothesis, whether or not it is a good hypothesis. Does it explain all the data? And if there's any maybe tiny little flaws with it, perhaps. Uh, and then... Next week, we'll give our own alternative natural hypothesis that we think perhaps uh, addresses the evidence better. Yeah. And I think it's important for us before we start, we should probably try to figure out what makes a good hypothesis, right? How do we know if uh, the evidence that we give is going to lead us to saying something is more probable or less probable in the, in the past, right? So that's kind of why we decided to take a pause on our naturalistic explanations because we want to be able to judge them just as much as we want to be able to judge the minimalist facts arguments or the conclusion that they draw from that, right? So, Yeah, we want to judge all the hypotheses by the same standards so they all get a fair shake. Now, we've been following Lacona and kind of the way that he develops these arguments, and so we're going to continue doing that with the framework we pick. The one that he advocates for in his paper is a version of the inference to best explanation, or IBE. Um, so, the first thing I did, and this is kind of an aside, a little bit peek behind the curtain. The first thing I did was I read everything that Lacona said about the IBE and this criteria, which I'm going to go into what that is in a minute. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that the way he's using it is the way that other people use it, which this is something that I do all the time or we do whenever we're doing research that usually doesn't make it in the episode. But uh, since we try to teach good skepticism, I thought it might be a good thing to point out. So if someone is saying that, hey, the way I'm doing we're going to evaluate X and we're going to do it through method Y or whatever. And because this is the way that it's done in history, or this is the way that it's done wherever, or this is the common thing, you should go check to see if they're right, if it is in fact the common thing, or if they've modified it or changed it in some way. Because if they have, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that what they're doing is wrong, but it should be a flag you should figure out why. Yeah. This is something that a lot of people will do just in general conversation, and you'll hear it in like formal debates too, but it's very similar to defining your terms, right? So kind of along those same lines, we need to make sure that we're doing the something the same way that they went, because if they have a completely different method and they mean something by those words, and we take into our own little method by what they did, then we, we, our conclusions are not going to be like right. this. 
So the good news was the way that Lacona was doing is more or less in line with the way other people are doing it. There's a wide variety of things that count as IBEs. I'm not, that could be a whole episode. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty of that. We're just going to take it as he's presenting it. So uh, the IBE, the criteria that he's giving, I'm going to order them in the way that Lacona does from most important to least important. So the first criteria is plausibility. Is your explanation plausible? By which it means, does it fit in with our background knowledge? Other things that we have very good reason to think are true, does your hypothesis fit with that? So for example, if your hypothesis required that a person lived for 900 years, that would be implausible because that goes against what we know about human lifespans. Or if somebody now, no, rose from the dead or something like that. <laughs> we'll get, <into laughs> we'll get that. there. So, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, it, it's important to note that failing one of these criteria, doing worse on one's uh, criteria doesn't necessarily kill your entire hypothesis. Right. You're going to grade everyone based on all of these criteria and then kind of compare at the end. Yeah. So you'd want an explanation that's plausible. Uh, the next two are a little bit less obvious, explanatory scope and explanatory power. So explanatory scope is the quantity of facts that are covered. How, how much of the available facts does this hypothesis touch on and explain in some way? In our case, we have three facts. So whatever the explanation does has to make sure it's covering the most, if not all of those, right? So right, ideally. Right. Uh, then explanatory power is how easily your hypothesis does that. How easily does your hypothesis explain the available facts without twisting or contorting or whatever? Um, I was looking into this, and I found a good explanation for this. I like the way that uh, Jonah Schupach explained it in Inference to the Best Explanation, Cleaned Up and Made Respectable. <laughs> and <laughs> paraphrasing the way he described it was, the hypothesis has explanatory power to the degree that it renders the thing you're trying to explain expected if your hypothesis were true. And it has maximal power if the observations that you're trying to explain would be expected with certainty, would be definitely going to happen if your hypothesis were true. And minimal power, of course, in the reverse, right? So if you, here's my explanation, if that explanation were true, you would expect to see X and X is the thing we see. The next one is less ad hoc, so also known as simplicity. So you've heard this a lot, like we want to have the most simplest explanation. This doesn't mean it takes the fewest words to say, um, but it just means that it requires fewer unevidenced assumptions. So an ad hoc thing, like less ad hoc, we don't want to keep adding explanations to cover facts. So like if we came up with an explanation, but that required us to then explain something within that explanation, you have to do that more and more then that's bad. So we want to do that. Ideally, you want to have one explanation that required nothing else. It just covered all the evidence in there, right? So this is very right. similar to plausibility. Uh, Lacona puts it this way. He says, quote, a hypothesis possesses an ad hoc component when it enlists non-evidenced assumptions. That is, it goes beyond what is already known. So Put a little star next to that, that exact phrasing, because it's going to come back later. Uh, it's going to be very relevant. Uh, this this kind of um, criteria is also known as like Occam's razor. Yeah. yeah. Simpler explanations, generally preferred. Uh, there's one more criteria that he includes called illumination, but he doesn't put a lot of weight into it. Basically, it's uh, how well, if if your thing were true, it would explain other stuff that was confusing previously. He says it's kind of a bonus if you get that, but it's not as important. And because it doesn't really factor into our analysis or his, we're just going to ignore it. So we've got four criteria, plausibility, explanatory scope, explanatory power, and less ad hoc or simplicity. 
So that's how we're going to judge the two hypotheses we're going to look at. The one we're looking at today is the resurrection hypothesis. So Lacona phrases his resurrection hypothesis thusly. Following a supernatural event of an indeterminate nature and cause, Jesus appeared to a number of people in individual and group settings and to friends and foes in no less than an objective vision and perhaps with an ordinary vision in his bodily raised corpse. Okay, so basically what this says is Jesus' disciples and Paul thought they saw Jesus after he died because they really did see him after he died. Boom. Exactly. Checkmate. You want a simple hypothesis? Doesn't get simpler than that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I, I guess. I mean, like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so right away, you might have been struck like I was by the first sentence, a supernatural event of an indeterminate nature and cause. And that stands out because you would think that Lacona is arguing for the Christian story and the Christian God, right? Technically, he says he isn't because uh, the claim that it was God who raised Jesus is incapable of verification. He concedes that he cannot verify that it was God who did it. He says he can just verify that it did happen. And so it was just some supernatural thing. And, oh, man, oh, golly, wouldn't it be weird if that happened to make Christianity more likely? Wouldn't that be neato keen, you know? <laughs> Seems pretty convenient that if you're going to do this, you're just going to take out the portion that requires you to explain something supernaturally happening, right? Like, <laughs> Right. It, it's almost a Martin Bailey fallacy, no. uh, which... I think we've mentioned a couple times, but basically the apologist wants to argue for the existence of the Christian God. And to his credit, Lacona in this dissertation and elsewhere is fairly forthright about that being his preferred outcome. He tries to do his best to, you know, be unbiased, but he's not, you know, cagey about his goals, right? But in any case, that's what they want to argue for. But that's hard. And why do something that's hard? So instead, you retreat from the bailey, the like the outer yard of a castle, into the mott, which is the castle itself, because the castle is easy to defend. And so you argue, well, I'm not arguing for God, just, you know, the supernatural. And man, if that happens to make Christianity good, well, oh, well, how about that? Then it's like, are they gone? Are they gone? Okay, cool. So we can prove that. Therefore, God exists, you know? Yeah. Oh. I mean, this is arguing for a speci specifically Christian version of the universe, right? Like he has this yeah. prior assumption built into this, and there's no way to yeah. get there. I mean, like it, let's it, let's be honest with yeah. each other. That's exactly what's happening here. But okay, so let's go through our criteria and see how his hypothesis stacks up. So, uh, with explanatory scope, remember that's how many things it explains and its power. How well it does it? I mean, it does pretty good, right? It's like tailor made for this thing. It explains everything that happened. And it does it trivially easy. Peter, James, Paul, they all saw Jesus because Jesus was right there in the room. Too easy, right? Yeah, I mean. But there so, was other there was other ones, though, right, that we have to account for? Yes, there, there's two others. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we get A plus, S tier in explanatory scope and power. But now we have to look at plausibility and less ad hoc. And here is where <laughs> my opinion and Lacona's opinion are going to diverge a little bit more. Because Lacona says that his theory is actually the most plausible and the least ad hoc. And he says that because, after all, it doesn't go against anything in our background knowledge. And as for ad hoc, it, it's not ad hoc at all because uh, it doesn't go, as Lacona put it, beyond what is already known. Not at all. Except... Except for that little, that little tiny part about requiring a supernatural dimension of reality. But like, aside from that thing, that little guy, I wouldn't worry about that little guy, you know? 
Oh my god, oh. it's it's crazy. Uh, Lacona recognizes that this is going to be an objection to his hypothesis, but his solution is kind of interesting. So he says that this is part of like the biases, or he calls it the horizons that a historian might come to the problem with, right? Um, and so your perception of whether the supernatural is plausible depends on whether you believe in the supernatural. And if you think it's complete, it's not possible, then the resurrection hypothesis obviously dies. And if you think it is possible, then it you know obviously wins. And so because you've got this tension here, he thinks that we should examine the evidence without prejudice in either direction and just select the best explanation of the relevant historical bedrock. I mean, that sounds fair when you say it like that. But what he's actually saying is that he wants us to give a 50-50 chance for both sides, for supernatural and natural. And natural, right. It seems like that would be a fair way, but uh, is it... And maybe you even think giving it a 50-50 shot, hey, there's two options. That's fair, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> uh, But is that really unbiased? So he gives four reasons why this is the best course of action. His four reasons are you shouldn't exclude a hypothesis a priori, like before you look at it. Uh, we don't want a naturalism of the gaps. That sounds bad, right? And that's where you use any natural hypothesis, no matter how unlikely, just because you don't want to deal with the supernatural hooey. Uh, if the supernatural were correct, like if it did exist, if we excluded it as an explanation, well, then we'd never know what happened in the past. We wouldn't be able to get at the truth. Wouldn't that be terrible? And we already covered this. He isn't saying that it's God or anything, you know? So let's take these. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, okay. So let, let's start. Let's let's go in reverse. Uh, if the supernatural did exist, if it was the answer, and you just excluded it out the gate, then we wouldn't be able to know what happened, and that wouldn't be great, right? Yeah, I mean that would be sad. Mm. Unfortunately, uh, sometimes sad things happen, and and this this is one of those sad facts of reality. There are things that actually happened in the past, and we have no way of knowing it. There's no way for us to tell. Like, it, yeah. The things that we do of, know, though, in fact, yeah. most things, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, almost, almost virtually everything that happened. Actually, if you think about it, we have no way of knowing. Like, I mean, aliens could have visited Earth in prehistory, like fifty thousand years ago. Like, our ancestors could have seen some crazy alien stuff, but they'd have no way of telling us. There'd be no way for us to know. It'd be like two thousand one, a space odyssey back there, and we'd have no way of knowing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the other part of this too is like. You don't necessarily, you have to have some evidence to support the supernatural. Like, it, So obviously we all come with the expects, um, with the understanding that we're sharing a reality. Like we assume that from the start, right? So we can say you are here, I'm here, we share this. We know that natural things exist, but we don't have the evidence for the supernatural, right? And so this is kind of where we get into Hume's arguments about miracles and how they come into play. So. Yeah, so Hume was an 18th century philosopher and like the OG skeptic, like a titan of skepticism. And in his book, An Inquiry, an Enquiry, with an E because this was the 18th century, an Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding, he talks about miracles and things like that. And based and specifically talking about whether we can believe a miracle happened in the past based on someone's testimony, based on someone saying that it happened. And the quote 
is, the plain consequence is, and it is a general maxim worthy of our attention, that no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. When anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should be either deceived or a deceiver, or that he or that the fact which relates should have really happened. I weigh one miracle against the other, and according to the superiority which I discover, I pronounce my decision and always reject the greater miracle. So the greater miracle being the actual miraculous thing, because if a person is telling you that they saw something miraculous, it will always be less miraculous that the person is wrong or lying. Yes. We, we know people are mistaken all the time. People lie yeah, all the happens. time. Yeah. Millions of times a day, people are wrong. And millions of times a day, people lie. This is a thing that happens all the time. It is the most common of things. And so if that is an option to explain the thing you have, then you should go with the most common of things, right? Now, that's not to say that technically you could never believe. Now, Hume does go on to argue that you could never believe um, an argument based on testimony. But that portion right there doesn't technically say that you could never believe it says that you would need the testimonial evidence to be more it being wrong to be more miraculous than the miracle itself right and so perhaps you could imagine a situation where i don't know if vishnu came and like spoke to every single person on earth simultaneously by name in their native language and gave them some kind of special i don't know something crazy right the stars rearrange themselves in the sky. I don't know, whatever crazy thing. And everyone saw it. Then you might have an argument that like the testimony being false would be more miraculous than the thing you're trying to say. Right. And everybody's testimony matched too. like, and you have different accounts yeah. of it all over the world. Yeah. So. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the objection that if the supernatural did exist and we excluded it, we wouldn't be able to get at what happened. I mean, it's true, but that isn't an argument for giving the supernatural wake up. It, it, it there's a lot of things that if they'd have like if fairies actually existed and acted in the past but we just exclude fairies then we'll never know okay but that doesn't mean that we have good reason to accept fairies right yeah it's turtles all the way down and this yeah. is this is just the way things are like you just got to deal with it tough toenails right, right? like right. would it be That's nice yeah, yeah yeah it would be nice to be able to get at every single thing that happened in the past but we can't uh, so you already touched on the next piece a little bit, the naturalism of the gaps with our shared reality. Right, um, yeah. So it's kind of a play, this this argument is kind of a play on words with the God of the gaps thing, which is more common. That's where a religious person you know, comes to a gap in knowledge and says, ah, that's where God goes. you know. And this has happened throughout history. Why is there lightning? Well, we don't know. So therefore it's like Zeus or whatever, you know, or we've got the orbits of the planets, uh, they don't seem perfect, but they definitely have to be perfect. So God must be monkeying with them, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. And it's obviously a problem throughout history that's always proven to be a bad way to get at truth, right? And so there's a reason why it's accepted by erudite, learned theists that that's a bad thing. But they often try to level the same charge at naturalists who say, oh, well, you're just saying, well, maybe there's a natural explanation. That's just naturalism of the cats, right? Uh, but the difference is that, like you said, we know we live, like we being us, but also everybody involved in this conversation who isn't a solipsist and just like, just just throw them out the door because they don't believe the door's there anyway, so what do they care? Uh, so, 
everybody other than them agrees that we all live in a world that's governed most of the time by natural laws. So usually if something happens, it's because of some kind of law of the universe or whatever. Even if that person believes in miracles, they still right. believe the natural part of it too, right? So like they're not yeah, just walking around on miracles all day long, you know, like that's, exactly. that's the it's, road. It's a, <laughs> right. it's a shared, it, that is something that all of us share as like, we all agree that this is true. Now the religious person wants to say, in addition to that, that thing we all agreed on, there is another layer of reality that's a supernatural and it has these kind of features or whatever. Well, that then the burden is on them to demonstrate that the the reality we all experience is not the only one. There's more to it, right? Yeah. So that's why there's a very big difference between, oh, there's a gap in knowledge, therefore God, and there's a gap in knowledge, therefore the appropriate thing to do would be, I don't know, not, you know. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point because the naturalism of the gaps also, this kind of gets back into that probability sometimes, right? To where... If you have an explanation that's natural, then it could fit. It's not like you're putting a gap in there where you're just making something up. You could say this piece of evidence over here is supportive of this naturalistic explanation, whereas you don't have that on your side. So, Yeah, and I'd go as far to say that if you have something that you explain and you have a plausible, even if it's an improbable natural explanation, improbable things do happen, right? So if you're saying, hey, this was unlikely, but it's based on things we know are true and exist and are real, then you should prefer that. Yeah. So uh, his final point is that you shouldn't exclude a hypothesis before you analyze it, right? So you shouldn't just, just throw the resurrection out the window before you even look at it. And to an extent, I agree, right? But I don't, I don't agree with it in the way that I think Lacona means it, right? So he means that like, the resurrection should be given equal weight. It should equal seat at the table, 50-50 chance, you know, just just no prejudice. Because we don't want to be prejudiced, right? We don't want to be biased. But do we? Maybe, maybe we do. Maybe a little bit of bias is justified. Uh, so as an analogy, like, let, let's take the religious piece out of it for a second. And let's go to something else. Let's go to aliens, because everyone loves some aliens. Aliens. And let's suppose that you're talking to someone who believes that not that they were abducted by aliens, but like alien abductions exist. Okay. Uh, They believe that the best explanation for all these alien abduction stories is that people are actually being abducted by aliens. Now their explanation has great explanatory scope and power, right? Why are people, why do, why are alien sightings regular? Because aliens are there. Uh, Why, are people like getting have any experience of being abducted because they're being abducted? I mean, right? that good scope, good power, right? Yep. So but... too easy there. <laughs> um, but it does require this little thing that aliens exist, super like super advanced aliens exist. Uh, they both exist and act on Earth, right? Now you might say, "Well, hold on, you don't just get to have that," but. Don't worry, because the alien guy, he's got the answer. See, you don't want to be biased against the existence of aliens, do you? Like, it wouldn't be fair. You don't want to exclude a hypothesis before you even analyze it. You know, you just want to assume that aliens don't exist. I mean, what if we're wrong? Then we would be prevented from knowing what happened in the past, and that would be terrible. We don't want to anti-alienism of the gaps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh... So what we should do is bracket the question of whether aliens exist and just put it at 50-50, even odds. You know, and just see which one explains the evidence better. That's what we should do. 
this, I mean, this is just not reasonable. Okay. Like you, you just can't go about doing this because you would just spend your entire day doing this for everything. Well, it's basically special pleading because yeah. Lacona would not do this for everything. Right. He wouldn't do it. I would be willing to bet he probably wouldn't be doing it for other religious traditions. But even aside from that, he definitely wouldn't be doing it for fairies or Bigfoot or, you know, pick your thing, whatever it is. He wouldn't be doing that. Uh, but because it's a religious experience, it gets special treatment. That's not right. Um, and just because there's two options doesn't mean that they have 50-50 split, you know? You can't just assume, just give everything a 50-50 chance, ignoring everything else you know, because that's a terrible way to get to truth. Basically, what he's arguing for is for us to ignore all of our background knowledge, all of any kind of background experience, and just come to it as if complete blank slate. But that's not the appropriate... Well, it could be an appropriate way if you wanted, but then you have to add all that stuff back in on the back end. You don't get yeah. to just ignore so, it completely. Yeah, let's say you did this. Let's say you wanted to make sure you didn't exclude a hypothesis. So you come there and you get a couple of hypotheses. Like you said... You have your blank slates when you start. But you go, all right, hypothesis A, what do we know? You start putting it down there. Hypothesis B, what do we know? Uh, nothing. Okay. 50-50, uh, this one weighs more. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're confronted with an, a new thing you need to explain, it's better practice to see if anything you already know can explain it. And this is what Lacona advocates for when he's talking about the, the criteria. Right. If you read the criteria, remember the way that he described uh, being simple. It's not evident, not enlisting non-evidence assumptions, right. not going beyond what's already known. Well, what other way could uh, just just saying the supernatural gets fifty fifty chance? What else could that be? That is going way beyond the evidence you have. It's bringing in a huge unevidenced assumption. You can you don't just get that for free. So. When you uh, are trying to explain something new, you should try to explain it in the context of the things you already know. And if those things are found to be inadequate, then you look for other explanations, right? But uh, if you see a ball fly over a house, you should start with the idea that maybe someone threw it or launched it in some way or whatever. You shouldn't start by positing this is a magic ball that is unaffected by gravity, you know? <laughs> Which would be cool. <laughs> it would be cool, but uh, to, uh, there's an old adage: if you hear galloping, you should first think horses, not zebras, right? right? Because it's more likely to be horses than zebras. Unless you live on a savanna like Africa or something like that. Right. <laughs> In that case, think zebras, not horses. Yeah, exactly. Flippy flop it. Yeah, right. So, so, and another thing too, though. Uh, He's not just bringing in the assumptions of the supernatural, but I actually challenge him on the argument that he's trying to be agnostic about what kind of supernatural it is. He's like, well, if you accept the supernatural, that's all you have to accept, just the supernatural, as if there's just like the one, you know? Right. Which he believes there is, obviously, but there are more settings than Christian supernaturalism and naturalism. Right. There's uh, probably more than we can count. Right. So the objection that he's answering is like, so one of the objections he answers, which you mentioned earlier, is like people saying, well, your res your the resurrection hypothesis is unlikely because we know that the dead don't come back to life. You know, billions of people live, none of them come back to life. Now, he says that that's not applicable because we are not saying 
that they came back to life through natural causes. All those people didn't come back to life through natural causes, but the resurrection isn't arguing natural causes. But here's the thing. That's a Christian-centric statement because it assumes that any supernatural beliefs you'd have would render the thing he wants to be true would render that likely. Right. And that's not the case. Like it depends on like what kind of supernatural framework you're accepting. Some of them would render it likely if it was uh, perhaps a Jewish supernatural framework or maybe a, a Muslim one or like an Abrahamic faith one, or even maybe some other faiths. You you could maybe get some more likelihood if you were like Greco-Roman paganism or whatever. Right. But if you were Hindu, for example, uh, you may be reincarnated, uh, you know, right. Your, your body doesn't come back from the dead in that case. So, yeah. So there's no space in, uh, I, I'm not an expert in Hindu faiths. Maybe there's some like odd ones out there, but the typical, uh, Hindu conception of death doesn't include coming back from the dead. It includes your spirit going on to be reincarnated in another form. So there's no room in that supernatural. They are, it is supernatural. They believe in miracles and all other kinds of stuff. But this specific miracle wouldn't fit in that framework. So you could you could believe in the supernatural, but if it's the Hindu supernatural, then this is out, right? Same thing with the Buddhists. They're you know largely atheists, but they still have mystical beliefs. They believe in reincarnation, things like that. And if they're right, again, there's no space for Christianity there. Well, Jordan, we shouldn't exclude those hypotheses. We should probably go and check them all. Yeah, we should go check. Each and everyone, each and everyone gets 50-50 shot, right? <laughs> how, how can everything have a 50-50 shot? <laughs> <laughs> Look, we got to be fair. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even if your belief, and, and even if the belief includes some concept of the resurrection, that doesn't mean that the events of the New Testament would become expected. You know, if the resurrection has to come from Odin or Zeus after a certain ritual, you know, that would render these things Impossible. So basically, Lacona is trying to smuggle in Christian assumptions into the framework without having to do any work. Far from being like, far from saying, like, oh, we shouldn't be biased. It's 50 50. We don't want to have prejudice. That's actually being extremely biased towards the supernatural. Like just saying, proposing a hitherto unevidenced layer of reality and saying that, oh, it should go, it should be given equal odds with not that is a very biased view assuming you're not coming to the table with your own preconceived notions about the supernatural so how does lacona define what an ad hoc hypothesis is because we mentioned this in the very beginning right right so it's one that enlists non-evidence assumptions that is it goes beyond what is already known well what's already known is the natural world and physics and that sort of stuff Maybe I missed the paper, the Nobel Prize for discovering the supernatural. <laughs> you know, maybe I missed that. Let us know in the comments if I missed the Nobel Prize for discovering God. But if I haven't missed that, then based on his definition, the resurrection hypothesis is the ad hoc hypothesis to end all ad hoc hypotheses. <laughs> yeah. Right. It is it is the most ad hoc of all possible hypotheses. So if we reassess Lacona's resurrection hypothesis. And according to the framework he presented, not the way he did it, but the framework he actually presented, then Lacona, the the resurrection hypothesis should get abysmal marks for plausibility and being ad hoc because it yeah. proposes something with no evidence. It proposes something that flies in the face of all our past uh, background knowledge, et cetera. 
Yeah, so if you wanted to try to get around this, you would have to create a separate argument for the supernatural, right? So that way you do that before the fact. And then you've already had this base established. So that way when you get to yeah. your thing, you know. Well, then you could include the supernatural as part of your background knowledge. Right. And then it'd be, but then your the probabilities would be wildly different, you know, <laughs> like that, yeah. that'd be hugely different. But the cone is actually using a circular argument here where the resurrection is evidence for the supernatural, which is evidence for the fact that he was resurrected. Well, so yeah, he wants the resurrection itself to be good evidence for the supernatural, right? But you can't have it both ways. Yeah. If you want to get credit for the supernatural, if you want its pos- its possibility to be as high as 50-50, right? If you want, hey, reality, the way that you experience it every day is fundamentally and vastly different from that, that doesn't get to start at 50-50 odds, I'm sorry, you know? Uh, so if you want to get to 50, 50, you're going to have to make some kind of argument. So Akona Zagler are going to have to make that argument, which he does a little bit. He kind of explains his own background, uh, and why he accepts Christianity. And it has to do with things like his sister saw a towel dancing in the air one time. And he heard footsteps sometimes when he was praying, um, which I'm sure were very convincing to him. I mean, they were his experiences. So whatever, doesn't matter. They, but the point is that they're not convincing to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, yeah, he would have to argue for that convincingly to be able to include it, or he'd have to say, you know, if this is going to be evidence, you don't get to include that, right? If this is your evidence for the supernatural, you don't get to assume the supernatural is part of it. Yeah. And the other part of this, too, is like this idea of the 50 50 proposition isn't used anywhere else. Uh, in this kind of world, right? This is something that is made up specifically from Lacona. Well, he, yeah, yeah. it's a kind of novel approach that he took and the way he builds it. And he, t- he spends like 40 pages talking yeah. about all this stuff. He builds it as a way to like, Hey, every historian comes with biases, right? Some historians are going to believe in the supernatural. Some are not. And this is like an intractable problem. So we should just set it aside and just try to ignore that and look at the evidence. Right. Which like, Again, it sounds at its face like it might be fair, but if you applied that logic to any other situation, it's obvious why that would be ridiculous. If your friend thinks that there's a shadow government running things, you don't. the shadow government doesn't start at 50-50, right? The lizard people controlling the earth doesn't start at 50-50. Not to say that because you're religious, you're as crazy as somebody thinks lizard people are running the earth. I'm just pointing out things that hopefully we all yeah, agree are that, ridiculous. That. And so like, yeah. It's 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 important you you make that distinction because people could think that we're just trash and unreligious people, which yeah, we're not. But we're trying to come up with examples of things that everybody, well, not everybody, yeah. most people would agree. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> most of the people involved in this conversation agree that lizard people aren't running the world, right? Or that there isn't a shadow government or whatever. Right. And if you wouldn't give those things a 50-50 shot to start it because you don't want to come with prejudices, it seems like what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, if you believe, now, as we mentioned, if you believed in Christian supernaturalism for some other reason, you're convinced for whatever reason, your own experiences, whatever reasons you have, you're convinced, then naturally the calculus is different for you, and that's fine. You could be perfectly reasonable and rational in believing the supernatural uh, because of your experiences, or, you know, if you're William Lane Craig, and you just think it would be cool and neat if Christianity were true, then there you go, you don't need anything else. You just believe whatever you think would be cool. Like yeah. I think it would be, I think it would be awesome. So therefore, it's true. You know, that's not really what he believes, but it's pretty close. Uh. <laughs> There's some clips. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So 
it, it can be reasonable for people who have that kind of background knowledge to believe the resurrection is true. That's fine. Uh, but that's not what Lacona is ta- arguing for. He's not arguing that I personally, as a Christian, am justified in believing what I believe. He's arguing that historians, as historians, should be able to examine the resurrection and come to the conclusion that it was probably a miracle. Which, yeah, I've read some historians who are not Christian, and guess what? They they don't come to this. They conclusion. don't come to this conclusion. Fact, <laughs> most critical historians who are themselves religious also don't agree with this approach. They from so a historical just, standpoint, right? From a historical standpoint, like yes. you'll get historians who will say, "This is what I personally believe." I cannot confirm that as a historian. So I personally believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that as a Christian. As a historian, I can only say this, right? Which I I give them kudos for doing that, right? Right. Uh, So I don't necessarily go as far as Bart Ehrman does. So Bart Ehrman says that if it's supernatural at all, historians can never touch it. It's completely outside of historical inquiry. And I understand why it's kind of a methodological naturalism thing. I'm not willing. I'm not necessarily willing to give Christianity that much leeway because if a if a supernatural thing happened in the past and it left evidence, then kind of like hypothetically, it should be open to historical inquiry. Right. I get that, but I also get where Armin's coming from because he he basically says the point of history is to determine what most probably happened in the past. And since a miracle is the least probable thing, then we should never be justified in saying that that is what, right? So, or to go back to Hume, it's, it's not even necessarily that like in principle, we're like forbidden from looking at it, but the evidence we are likely to have in the present is not going to be of such a quality that we would, by virtue of that evidence, come to the conclusion that the supernatural exists. So, yeah. To sum up, we had four criteria to run this resurrection hypothesis through. The four criteria were plausibility, explanatory scope and power, and less ad hoc. The resurrection hypothesis that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, and that's why his followers saw him, because he was totally there, you guys. Uh, Great unexplanatory scope. It explains everything. Great explanatory power. It's like tailor-made for this situation. Unfortunately, it is completely implausible despite Lacona's objections because it does not at all fit with our background knowledge. If Lacona wants to change that, he is going to need to argue for the existence of the supernatural so that he can include it in his background knowledge. And it's not ad hoc, or sorry, it is very ad hoc. The way Lacona describes that is something that goes beyond what's already known. So it's not a well-established fact that the supernatural exists so therefore his hypothesis goes well beyond what is known yeah so i mean we're going to get into this uh in the next episode right but it's possible we just can't know what happened right yeah it may be that uh we just have to stay agnostic on the topic it may be or maybe there's a natural alternative an explanation that fits all the evidence explains everything in the uh using only phenomena that we know exists and no happens, and we can observe today. And if you want to guess what that is, what that hypothesis we're going to present next week is, leave it in the comments below. Uh, if yours is better than ours, then we're just going to shamelessly steal it and not give you credit. <laughs> no, kidding. We, we'd at least give you credit. Uh, <laughs> but do leave a comment if you, uh, you want to guess what we're going to talk about next week. And I promise 
I promise. I know we said last week we're going to talk about it. For real, this guy, guys, this time, we do this so many times. Uh, we get, it's like one episode, easy, in and out. It'll be done. No problem. And we get it like maybe two. And then like a week later, it's like maybe three. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sucks having standards. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Speaking of standards, you have held the standard of making it all the way to the end of the video, which most people don't do. You're in like the top 25 or 15% of viewers. So since you made it all the way to the end, you get fallacies galore. Today's fallacy of the day is the 50-50 fallacy. This is a very special fallacy because we made it up. Release the name for it. <laughs> well, we we made up targeting somebody who used this fallacy. So we identified it and we coined it. So <laughs> Right. Uh, I looked, I couldn't find anyone talk crediting this as a fallacy. And it, it's not so much a fallacy as it is just like bad math, you know, yeah. misusing data, which is way worse. Uh, so what is the 50-50 fallacy? Well, the 50-50 fallacy is to say I have option A and I have option B. And since I have two options, I need to give them equal weight as they're free and probably correct. Yep. At 50-50, like I buy a lottery ticket. I'm either going to win the jackpot or not. <laughs> it's a 50-50. <laughs> yeah, those are great odds, right? Yeah. Buy me a hundred of them, please. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, simply because you have two options does not mean that there's equal weight between the two. Also, if you could find what fallacy this would fall under, let us know. I looked. Maybe this, Maybe we're not as clever as we thought. I don't know. Whatever. It doesn't matter. And, and, yeah. But also, too, like there are things out there on the internet uh, especially if you go to like Rational Wiki or some of these other places, just because somebody says something's a fallacy doesn't mean it's an actual yeah. fallacy. Just like the one we just made up. Like a good rule of thumb: if you find yourself in Rational Wiki, you should immediately leave. That's, right. that's, that's, yeah. that's the best, the best course of action there. So uh, probabilities are not equal. Just because you have two options does not mean they're equal. The probability space is not equally distributed among all of your options. Some options are going to be more likely than others. And so if you know nothing, if you have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever, then the only sensible thing to do is give 50-50 odds or split it evenly among all your options if you know absolutely nothing. But very rarely do you come to a situation with absolutely no knowledge, right? You've got some information about something, probably, <laughs> usually, hopefully. <laughs> and you can apply that to give a better prior if you want to be Bayesian about right. it. Right. Yeah. Wow. I'm looking so, forward to the next next one because we get to talk about things that are actually knowable. Yeah, and real, and like you can observe them today, like right now. You could if yeah. you had like a psychology degree and stuff, or you could just read peer reviewed papers, which is what we do. So uh, <laughs> next week we are going to be going over our natural explanation for the uh, Easter story that we think explains the evidence pretty well. We don't know for certain, sir, that's what happened, but we think it's a good idea. So. Hit the bell, subscribe so you won't miss that one. And until next week, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.